You're listening to Once Upon a Podcast, a show all about the rediscovery of children's literature. Join hosts Sarah and Chandler as they delight in childhood classics and discover new favorites. Hey, Chandler. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Doing great. It's uh, it's getting much warmer here in New York, and uh, things are things are looking up. I'm very excited. Good. It's nice and warm here in Southern California. Um, <laughs> although, as we were talking about like before we started recording, I just got back from Portland and got to go to one of the most incredible bookstores I've ever been to. Um, Powell's. They call it Powell's City of Books, and it's enormous. And there are so many books. <laughs> so it's <laughs> like an a lot actual city. It's huge. It's like, and it's right in downtown Portland. And it's, so it's the size of like several large stores. Even just the children's section is like the size of a bookstore. It's really awesome. That's amazing. Is it all yeah. spread out or is it like tiered? It's tiered. So there's like a couple different floors and then different sections by color, which are you know, fiction or kind of they'll have like the art and photography and architecture books all together and like that sort of thing. I wonder if they in the Strand, which is here in New York, have a have a rivalry as to who is the biggest or if mm, the Strand is just I like we have 18 miles of books and deal with it. That's a lot of miles. <laughs> That's a lot of miles. Yeah. Yeah. I don't actually know which one is bigger, but they, I mean, I haven't been to New York, but when I do go, I would love to go to the Strand because that sounds kind of amazing. Oh, it is. It, it's it's lovely. I have not gone. Actually, okay, best story ever, and this is mm. a perfect segue. I right after we decided what we were going to talk about for this this episode, I was going to go thrift store shopping, and the thrift store that I wanted to go to was dangerously close to the Strand. So I just I was like, okay, I'll turn the other way when I walk past the store. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> there are all these book carts lined up outside. So I'm like, oh, look, there's the dollar children's book cart. And it just, it called me over. So I went. I, I answered. I couldn't ignore it. And no. lo and behold, guess what book was there on there for a dollar? Was it A Year Down Yonder by Richard Peck? <laughs> Bingo. That's so amazing. <laughs> oh, I totally saw one when we were in Portland. We went to a bunch of different thrift stores. And I also saw a copy of A Year Down Yonder. But I think it was more than a dollar. So oh. I didn't get it. And I might actually have a copy in an attic somewhere. But anyway, well, that's amazing. It, I was just <laughs> thrilled. So everyone knows that sequels are never as good as the original, but Richard Peck's books seem to provide an exception to the rule. Peck's novel A Long Way from Chicago won the Newbery Honor, essentially a runner-up to the Newbery Medal, in 1999. The sequel, A Year Down Yonder, is his most well-known novel, and it won the Newbery Honor in 2001. Both books follow the adventures of Mary Alice and Grandma Dowdow. Peck once wrote, quote, A Long Way from Chicago and A Year Down Yonder, two books that have changed my life, are set in the farm town where my father grew up. Grandma Dowdell's house is the house where my grandmother lived, a tall jigsaw gothic with lightning rods. Richard Peck was born in 1934 and died almost a year ago on May 23rd. In an autobiography for Scholastic, he wrote, quote, I was born and brought up in Decatur, Illinois, the real Illinois, a long way from Chicago. In 1956, he earned a bachelor's degree in English at DePaul University and studied abroad in England in his junior year. After college, he was drafted into the army and served in Germany. There, he started ghostwriting sermons for chaplains, which he says was his first writing job. He then worked as a high school teacher, but he was transferred to a junior high school to teach English, which he wasn't very happy about. Still, he said that his experience with junior high schoolers was beneficial for his writing later on. 
Quote, ironically, it was my students who taught me to be a writer, though I had been hired to teach them, Peck said in a speech published in Arkansas libraries. He went on, they taught me that a novel must entertain first before it can be anything else. I learned that there is no such thing as a grade reading level. A young person's reading level and attention span will rise and fall according to his degree of interest. I learned that if you do not have a happy ending for the young, you'd better do some fast talking, end quote. Peck summed up his philosophy of literature in his autobiography, Anonymously Yours. Quote, I read because one life isn't enough, and in the page of a book, I can be anybody. I read because the words that build the story become mine to build my life. I read not for happy endings, but for new beginnings. I'm just beginning myself, and I wouldn't mind a map. I read because I have friends who don't, and young though they are, they're beginning to run out of material. I read because every journey begins at the library, and it's time for me to start packing. I read because one of these days I'm going to get out of this town, and I'm going to go everywhere and meet everybody, and I want to be ready. A review of The Year Down Yonder that appeared in the Yellow Wolf magazine said it is, quote, a unique approach to children's literature, a modern-day children's book that is based on a time period we all enjoy reading about, rather than submitting to modern-day approaches with sci-fi and dragons, end quote. The book consists of stories of 15-year-old Mary Alice and the year she spends with her eccentric grandmother. It's a delightful book and an instant classic. I would totally agree with that instant classic bit. I had actually never heard of it um, until about eh, three years ago when we, uh, my family and I were redoing a, a house, the house that I lived in um, when I was at college, and we had, uh, we were painting a lot. So we got, we listened to a lot of audiobooks, and so we grabbed this one from the library, and we're like, oh, it's a Newberry it's a Newberry book, so we'll just take that, and we listened to it, and we just fell in love instantly. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so fun. Um, and I think definitely, like, the newest book that we've done, probably by far, um, by far, because it was only published in 2000. And I remember reading it for school, like, as a read-aloud, so it must have been only six or seven years old at that point. But, yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, and I definitely would have guessed that it was – written a long time like I personally thought it had been written a long time ago probably closer to that time or like the 50s or something but no it's it's a more recent book yeah it feels very modern especially because we just talked about Homer Price not that long ago which mm -hmm. you know was actually written during that time period exactly um, and it's very similar it is it really really is um I just have to say I think it's really interesting the quote he had about um the the grade reading level a young person's reading level i just thought that was really interesting that quote of pax yeah i thought so too the idea that you know just because you're eight doesn't mean you're only reading things or even that you are reading things that an eight-year-old is supposed to read or a second grade reading level or whatever um it seems like he really got that different people are at different levels and can read at their own levels and the important thing, at least at this point, is that it's something interesting, which is great. Exactly. Also, that if you do not have a happy ending for the young, you'd better do some fast talking. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> I don't know if I quite agree with that quote, but uh, I see where he's going with it. Yeah, I bet he had a lot of, ex of students who expected the happy ending, and maybe he had to kind of, I don't know, maybe he did find himself having to do some fast talking with books that didn't end particularly well. All right. What themes kind of what jumped out to you? So it's, you've, you've come back to this book. You personally have come back to this book after uh, 
a number of years. And what what struck you while you were reading it? The first thing that struck me, and I think we we see this throughout the book at the beginning and then more and more as the book goes on, is this idea of family and then also home. Um, we see, of course, at the very beginning, Grandma Dowdell takes in her granddaughter, Mary Alice, who she'd had before in the previous book, but this time she takes her in for an entire year, um, which, of course, is a huge sacrifice. She's raising her daughter or granddaughter. Um, and that's just that's something that you do as family, right? Grandma Dowdell sees that her, um, you know, that Mary Alice's parents are not able to provide for her at this point because there's a recession going on. So she sacrifices for her, taking her in. And I think we see this most clearly when she um, saves up money and she ends up buying a train ticket for Mary Alice's brother, Joey, so that he can come and visit for Christmas. And that was just such a huge thing for Mary Alice. And she, even as a kid, I mean, I think because she lived so closely with her grandma, she saw what a big sacrifice that was. Um, there was a really funny story, too, that I think also has to do with the importance of family and, and community where um, the grandma is hosting a tea for the Daughters of the Revolution. And it's really funny. She just ends up hosting it because they want her to bake these tarts. She's not a part of their group. And she insists on having it at her house, which they didn't want because she's not a part of the group. But she did that so that she could reunite these two long lost sisters, who one of whom was in the group and one wasn't. And it was funny the way the one who was in the DAR could trace her family history all the way back, right, to the American Revolution. And then, of course, somebody there is like, uh, no, 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 you were Mrs. adopted. Weidenbach, the banker's <laughs> Mrs. Weidenbach, the banker's Mrs. yes, who's just so snob, uh, so snobby. Um, and then, you know, to find out, no, she and Effie Wilcox, right, a good friend and a neighbor, um, is that they're sisters. And not only can neither of them trace their families back all the way to the Revolution, but they come from these two different backgrounds. And the grandma sees a chance to to show that they are family, which is a really funny, but pretty, a pretty great thing. Um, although I don't know if Mrs. Whitebeck was as thrilled about it, but it was pretty great. Um, and then finally we see toward the end that Mary Alice feels more at home there than she does in Chicago where she came from. And she even wants to stay, but her grandma ends up telling her, you know, now that your parents are back on their feet, you have to go home. You have to go be with them, be with your family. Um, and it's this really sad thing which is such a shift from the beginning of the book when Mary Alice does not want to be there. So it's kind of beautiful that she learns to really love her grandma and really respect her in a way that she didn't necessarily before. And that that becomes her home is living with her. And then at the very end, she even comes back to get married in her grandma's house, which is really sweet. I love that scene. I think it, that, that, that ending scene is so touching. Um, you see so many different facets of because the the story, Mary Alice is the narrator in a sense, but the the story is about Grandma Dowdle. Um, and it's just, you see so much depth from all these different angles in the, the most surprising ways. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. It's really well written. And there's so much, so many themes that are pulled through the book and, and with all the interesting characters that we meet. I think he does this really well. He really does. And he doesn't, he doesn't need a lot of words like the his characters except for mrs weidenbach of course don't <laughs> they don't talk a ton they but he has these funny ways of characterizing each one so like effie wilcox with her eyes looking every direction or he has all these, he has these funny phrases that he uses to describe grandma dowdle and so it works really well and you get a really clear picture 
without it being overly drawn out, which I love. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that, you know, it's funny, we see Mary Alice narrating the story and, um, like you said, having these great descriptions of everybody and everything that happens to her. Um, and I like that at the end of the book, she becomes a writer herself. Yes, very much so. Which is great. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I really love, um, I've, I've read this book a, a number of times, and something that always struck me as, as really interesting is that it's a small town. So everybody knows everything and everybody's into everybody else's business. But that's one of these characterizations of Grandma Daddle is how she keeps herself to herself. She she does not – everybody there's – the, the, there's some great line about – you're like, oh, yes, uh, Mr. Daddle, Grandpa Daddle, he was a very respected uh, member of the community. And then there's Grandma Daddle and everyone's like, <laughs> in this great awe of her. It's, she's one of those people that never darkens the door of a church, but man, does she know the Bible backwards and forwards. Yeah, that was great. And she's described as this huge, intimidating woman who carries a gun a lot. Exactly. <laughs> scares a lot of people. Um, and she's very private, but at the same time, she knows everything that's going on with her neighbors so she can be there, like for the grumpy old man, old man Nyquist, when there's a tornado, right? Like she knows where she needs to go to help people. So even though she does keep to herself, she also very much cares about the people around her. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's something that really strikes me every time I read this, every time I read this book, because she constantly, she seems to complain or just severely judge everybody else in the in the community, but she has been there. She knows everybody inside and out, and she is a really keen judge of human nature, and she really understands kind of the inner workings of how things are. Now, do I agree with all of her tactics? Not necessarily, but my goodness, does it make for an excellent story. It just, oh, yeah. It just absolutely. works. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about under the watching out for others theme yeah no i did have one other uh, one other bit um but also how she doesn't profess to have any friends but she cares for effie wilcox who's slightly slightly crazy but you know she's not quite all there but she's been there and like it's a different way to look at friendships and what does it mean to be a neighbor I think. Yeah, absolutely. There's even a line where Mary Alice says, Grandma is Mrs. Wilcox, your best friend. And Grandma just says, no, she's my neighbor. <laughs> like, exactly. No, 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 no. She's not my friend. I just have to watch out for her and make sure she's okay and help her find her long lost sister. But we're not friends. <laughs> right. And I think that that should give all of us pause in a sense um, for how we live our lives and in our neighborhoods or, or towns or cities. Like, what what does it mean to be a neighbor and how are we invested in our community? So Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Yeah. Yeah. But what else? So what else jumped out to you? So throughout pretty much every story, every every chapter, there's this theme of mischief, which is what makes it so funny and so entertaining. Um uh, right at the beginning, uh the grandma they have this like this this bully who has followed Mary Alice home and she rides in on this stolen horse and Grandma Dowdell ends up sneaking out to let the horse run away back to its original owner, which is very funny. Um, and she kind of uses this mischievousness both to help others and for her own advantage. And, and a lot of times, both at the same time. Um, 
there's another there's a couple of scenes about halloween and there are the halloween pranks where these boys keep sneaking around knocking over people's outhouses so she plots revenge and ends up spilling a bunch of glue on them um which of course is for her own self-interest but also in a way it's to teach them a lesson don't go knocking out people's outhouses um my favorite well i don't know there's kind of a few that are my favorites but there was one great one where the um, old man Nyquist had told her that she could have any pecans that fell off of his tree to, you know, bake into her pie. And he he said that knowing full well that there were almost no pecans on the ground. So she ends up taking his tractor and running it into the tree. Um, But even as she does that, and she does kind of steal some pumpkins from neighbors and stuff, but she does that to treat everybody else to these pecan and pumpkin pies. And that's really just the hit of Halloween. So that's a kind of a good place where she used her mischievousness for the good of everybody. Um, I also love how then, she's oh, sorry, the, yeah. I love how she's the life of the party, even though everybody's really scared of her. Yeah, and she even keeps acting like she's not going to show up to these things, and she does. And everybody really timidly is like, can we have some pie? Which is great. <laughs> Absolutely fabulous. One of my favorites, too, where Mary Alice takes a page out of her grandma's book in the mischievousness by tricking the mean girl, Carlene, into believing that the popular new boy, Royce, and a few other boys had sent Ina Ray valentines. And she's this really shy girl, but she gets these three valentines, which we find out at the end Mary Alice had actually written. Um, And that really puts Carlene in her place and it makes her very angry. But it's it's kind of this justice, too, for poor Ina Ray. (laughs) So classic i love that chapter yeah yeah love that chapter well one of the one of the other themes that really stands out especially because this book is set in the great depression era is the just the thrift and the backbreaking hard work that is constantly going on throughout the entire book and a lot of this you would just say, oh, well, Grandma Doddle bring that, brings that on herself. She could make things easier if she didn't do, if she had more time to say, uh, what is that, time-saving devices, uh, <laughs> like like uh, Homer Price's uncle. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, or labor-saving devices, that's what it was. And, um, but that's not, that's not how she works. She saves everything. She has a use for everything and she is a perfectionist. I love when she talks about how they make their just the the baking, the constant making of food in this book and the perfection that she goes to in making it. You don't waste, but you it has to be good. And I just find that so fascinating. But um they talk about is it in here? Oh no. I, so this there's a sequel for any of our listeners or a prequel for any of our listeners out there, which is um, a long way from Chicago. And in that book, there's a lot of a lot more of this as well. There, she makes all of her own soap. The laundry takes so long. The just all of the gardening. She raises a lot of her own food and stuff. So just that intense type of thrift, whatever you can do to save money. Um, but in just the cleverest ways possible. But it takes so much work. And I just, I always find that so remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Mary Alice does too, especially because 
the grandma is so strong for somebody of her age, but she does so much to take care of herself and everyone's around her. And yeah, you're right in ways that she doesn't necessarily have to, but that's just kind of what you do. Even things that seem kind of crazy, like walking out to get foxes out of traps in the middle of the night when it's snowing and freezing cold. But these are just all the things that she's always done in order to take care of herself. And I think a lot of it too, is that her husband has died. So she really has to, to work to provide for herself and the people around her. And it's, it's pretty admirable the lengths that she goes to. Yes. She is, she is a truly self-sufficient woman. Very much so. So we've talked a little bit about some food, and there's certainly a lot of cooking that goes on in the book. But Sarah, I know you had a recipe that you wanted to share with us that is pertinent. Yes. Oh, I love food. Okay. Anyway, moving <laughs> on. Um, I, so I'm not a crazy big fan of pumpkin or pecans um, or those pies, which do play a large role in this book. So I just couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to, to talk about those. They each have their merits. But for our purposes today, I wanted to give a recipe or a shout out to tarts. So in that, in the uh, DAR chapter where Grandma Doddle has, she hosts the the women of the Daughters of the American Revolution at her at her house, and it is just a fantastic, oh, such a good scene. Justice is served well, but also these wonderful tarts. Also, just a side note, in that chapter, I really love how Richard Peck slips in there that she she gets all of the DAR ladies drunk. Yes. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that for a couple until a couple of reads. I just really appreciate the subtlety that he slips that in there. It's very funny. I have another side note, which is all of this is going on in honor of George Washington's birthday, February 22nd, which is also my birthday. So I felt very celebrated. Hey, no way. Well, there we yeah. go. Perfect. <laughs> well, this and it was so funny. So the the recipe that I would like to share with everyone is four cherry tarts and it's from Taste of Home, which I am a huge fan of Taste of Home. We used to get their magazines. We still have big binders full of these magazines that my mom hole punched and we'll, we'll go through them and and use them. And they're just these really time-tested recipes from women all over the country. And I think they're wonderful. And the little note at the top of this recipe online says, at our house, we celebrate George Washington's birthday with this cherry dessert. And I was like, oh, hey, how fitting. That's so great. But I just, ever since watching the Great British Baking Show, I'm a huge tart fan. So I actually, I've never made one. So I asked for a tart pan for Christmas and I got one and I can't wait to use it at some point. But it has the bottom actually comes out it's it's kind of like one of the springform pans except it's ridged around the edges and the, the bottom kind of pop out um and it is just the coolest thing so but these the cherry tarts are mini so you use little tart pans it's very that cute. sounds adorable and, and delicious ah oh, so good and we will have a link to that recipe in the show notes yes everyone check that out make some cherry tarts to celebrate me and george washington and george washington of course but you know <laughs> mostly chandler <laughs> Well, or something. We'll figure it out. <laughs> what music should we listen to, Chandler, while we read this book and eat our cherry tarts? Great question. So there is definitely some references to music in the book. Mary Alice takes her beloved radio with her when she moves in with her grandma. And she talks about how she really enjoys listening to it in her room at night. 
Um, she even references a few classic radio programs like Baby Snooks and Fibber McGee and Molly um, and says that she loves Kate Smith's beautiful voice. Mary Alice refers to Kate by her popular title, The Songbird of the South. And specifically, she loves Kate Smith's song, When the Moon Comes Over the Mountain, which even Grandma Dowdell sings to herself, uh, which is this very sweet and touching moment that even she knows this beautiful and popular song. Um, so as I was researching this, I realized that the name Kate Smith sounded super familiar. And it's because she's actually become a controversial figure just in the last couple of weeks, because there's been some controversy over a few of her 1931 recordings that contain racist lyrics. Um, although some people argue that these songs are meant to be satirical, you know, it's hard to say because there was so much racism, of course, in 1931. However, personally, I don't think that playing her other songs is endorsing racism, um, and we shouldn't let any of this keep us from enjoying her music. So I recommend listening to When the Moon Comes Over the Mountain. I think it's really beautiful. And then I also recommend checking out some of her other stuff. I love her renditions of Stars Fell in Alabama and When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. Really beautiful. She had a really incredible voice. I'm going to have to go look those up. That's so interesting that you bring up the Kate Smith um, controversy because I've actually been dealing with a lot of this at work recently. And uh, we uh, one of the one of the videos that I was working on was all about reasons why this is utterly ridiculous, this controversy. And mm. yeah, it's just completely ridiculous. It was 80 years ago. This is – she did so much more than – this is something that should not sully her, her um, reputation and her legacy. And it is yeah, a I agree. shame that people have taken it to this extreme. I agree. I mean, her lyrics are pretty shocking and pretty obviously offensive, but it's so hard to judge anything by today's standards, especially when she has so much other beautiful music that is just beautiful. It's in no way offensive to anyone, and we really shouldn't throw that out. Exactly. Um, so as the thing you're working on, with the Yankee Stadium controversy, I assume? Yeah, that was part of it. <clears throat> it was the Yankee Stadium, and there was a, the Philadelphia hockey team whose name is escaping me at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, there's a hockey team. I yeah, don't they actually had a statue of her, and they removed it. Yeah, it's uh, it seems like an extreme and unfortunate reaction. And I mean, so they're no longer playing her renditions of God Bless America, which is also really beautiful. Um, and I think that's too bad. I completely agree. And so the, the songs, which I have not looked up, but they I they are controversial. But I think, and this was some of the stuff I, I'm, I'm pulling from what I've heard people talking about, is one of them is, is um, sarcastic is not the word I'm looking for here, uh, satirical. Um, mm -hmm. But the other, you have to also remember that she was a woman in show business. Like this was somebody, some commentator brought this up. He was like, look. She, this was really soon after women got their right to vote. Do you think she had any say in what she was going to be singing? Yeah, that's a great point. And another reason why we can't just thrust our standards now on everything, because there's just so much background that because we weren't there at the time, we can't fully understand. Exactly. Exactly. There's so much more to her than this. And I think people shouldn't discount her. And I'm so glad that you brought these songs up and I'm going to go listen to them because I have not really listened definitely. to any of her stuff. Yes, yeah, so beautiful. Definitely recommend. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Chandler. Thank you, Sarah. And to our listeners, our next book that we'll be reading for the for our next podcast in two weeks is Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. And we'd like to thank D. Yankee for our intro and outro music, Driving Home. <laughs> 